0: Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were Written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, this is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have Made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go uh, before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people. Because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your holy word. And Lord, we acknowledge that every page of this great book has been inspired by your Holy Spirit. It is truth. It is truth that both uh, challenges us and comforts us. Lord, uh, we need both of these things in our lives for your light to shine into our hearts and our minds, to show us our own resistance to you, our own rebellion against you, and also to comfort and warm our hearts with your grace and the love that is ours in Christ. So we pray as we look at this challenging passage uh, this morning that uh, your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Instruct us and guide us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, today we are uh, looking at really an important passage for understanding kind of the main message of the whole Bible. And uh, because, you know, the story uh, in this story, God has chosen the people of Israel And uh, he's, for centuries, has made promises to the people of Israel and he saved them out of slavery. That's what the book of Exodus was. They were slaves in Egypt and he's rescued them. And now he's given them the Ten Commandments. He says, I have promised. I'm going to live among you. I'm going to come live among you. It's as if God has married himself to this people. And in Exodus 32, almost immediately the people of Israel betray the Lord. And so the question is, what is God going to do? He's married himself to his people, and they've betrayed him immediately. How is he going to respond? And uh, this is really the brilliant and fascinating drama of the whole Bible, that God has married himself to a people who are stubborn, they're rebellious, and they're untrustworthy, and they're selfish. God has married himself to people like us that, you know, (laughs) disobey him, sin against him. What's he going to do about being married to people like us? And, you know, if you've been married, you know that this is really the drama of marriage. What happens when two sinners are bound to each other, they're selfish and they hurt each other, and you can't run away from one another. You have to face each other. And all the emotion and the mess and the fear and the love and the passion, all of that, this is where the drama happens. And the way G.K. Chesterton puts it, he says, the sexes are two stubborn pieces of iron. If they are to be welded together it must be while they are red hot. And I think that means the red hot, not just of romance and passion, but of fear and anger and forgiveness and laughter and joy. There is nothing that makes you red hot like marriage. And the thing that allows the welding together to happen in marriage, you know, two stubborn pieces of iron to be welded together is the vow. I will never leave you. And because, you know, in order for two pieces of iron to be welded together, they can't just be red hot, but they need to be held together. They need to be pressed up against one another. And it's the same in our relationship with the, the Lord. We are welded to him in the emotional up-and-down, red-hot struggle of the Christian life. And the Bible's word for the thing that kind of holds us together, what holds God, you know, God's married to these sinners like us, what holds us together, presses us together so we can be welded, is the covenant. That's the Bible's language of the thing that is holding us together, and uh, that's really the overarching drama of the whole Bible: is what happens when God makes a covenant of grace with sinful and rebellious people. Well, Exodus thirty-two is one of those red-hot moments in the Bible, and so today we're going to talk about the theology of covenant and uh, you know study God's covenant in the Bible, and we're going to do that by answering three questions from this text: three simple questions. What is a covenant? Can the covenant ever be broken? And how does God keep a covenant? Three, three simple things. you know, I know this Bible is an intimidating big book. Like, what's the whole story about? This is a really great way to summarize what the whole story is about is understanding the covenant. So, three important questions for understanding our relationship to God this morning. And the first question is this What is a covenant? And the idea of a covenant is very ancient. Uh, in, in the ancient world, you know, the most significant covenant making would happen between a, a ruler and a king, and kind of a lesser kingdom. And uh, so, for example, you know, if a smaller kingdom is being invaded by one of their neighbors and they don't have a big enough army to fend off these invaders, they would go to one of the superpowers in the ancient world, you know, the Assyrians or the Hittites or something, and say, hey, will you help us bring your army to defend us against these invaders? And if you do, we will covenant with you and we'll become your servants. And so, you know, the Assyrian king would bring his army and they'd defeat the invaders and so they would make a covenant together. And the Assyrian king would be called the suzerain, so I guess the sovereign lord, and then you'd have the vassal kingdom, and the covenant would begin with a record of everything that the suzerain had done for the vassal. So, uh, you know, all the, the armies that he defeated for them, and then you would give a promise, I'm going to continue to protect you. And then the next section would be all the obligations that the vassal has to do for the suzerain. So you got to pay all these taxes, and you got to give obedience to the, you know, your your overlord. And then at the end would be this list of blessings and curses. Hey, if you keep the covenant, this is going to go well for you. If you break the covenant, these are all the plagues that are going to come upon you. And so biblical scholars have observed that the literary structure of the Bible follows some of the ancient structure, especially like Hittite suzerain uh, 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 covenant forms. And what we see in the Bible is that the Lord is the suzerain, and he rescued Israel from their enemies, the Egyptians. And the book of Exodus gives us the whole story of how the the suzerain did that. He's, you know, I brought the plagues upon them. I've rescued you. And then he's given the obligations to his vassal, right? That's the Ten Commandments and the laws that came after the Ten Commandments. And he says, you're going to build me a tent and all of that. These are the obligations. And then we come to this passage, Exodus 32. What happens If you don't do the obligations, you break the covenant. And so the Old Testament is largely about this covenant where God says, I'm going to be your God and you shall be my people. And we read over and over again that the Israelites over and over again are breaking the covenant and not doing their obligations. So how's God going to respond? And so I think, you know, one question it brings up is, well, is God's covenant different than the Assyrians and the Hittites at all? We hope so, right? So, well, there's a couple ways that God's covenant is different that I want to point out from this passage. So first, God's covenant is not based on our obedience. God's covenant is not based on our obedience. And because, you know, in this chapter, the Israelites, they make this golden calf and they worship the golden calf. And the Lord says that he is going to consume them for doing this, this act of betrayal. And how does Moses reason with the Lord about why the Lord should not destroy them? Well, look at, look at verse 12. So, the, so Moses prays and he implores the Lord. He's like, why are you being so angry? And then in verse 12, he says, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Now, I think this is kind of strange. That Moses is like, you know, what are the Egyptians going to think of you? And you're like, who cares about the Egyptians? Like the Lord just destroyed them. And does the Lord care what the Egyptians think about him? Well, apparently he does. Because what Moses' reasoning is, is, the reason the Lord chose Israel wasn't just for Israel. If you go back to the promise to Abraham, he says, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And what God expected was going to happen is when he rescued this nation of slaves, word was going to get out to all the nations that the true God, tyrants should be afraid of him, and, uh, and that he defends the weak, and he defends slaves, and he's a father to the fatherless. And everyone would hear about God's grace, and God wants all the nations to hear about him. So Moses is saying God's plans aren't based on Israel's obedience. They are based on God's purposes to make his grace and power and justice known to the nations of the world. That's why the covenant is there. It's based on God's purposes. Then Moses goes on. Verse 13 He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So here Moses is quoting the Lord's promises. This is exactly what he said to Abraham and he's like quoting back to the Lord what the Lord said. By the way, little model, this is one of the best models for prayer in the whole Bible. You want to learn to pray, take God's promises and say them back to him. The Lord loves that. He loves to hear that we've heard his promises, and he loves to answer that prayer. That's exactly what Moses is doing. And it's amazing that Moses says that God made these promises by swearing by his own self. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, when you swear by something, you have to find something greater than yourself to swear by, but God doesn't have anything greater to swear by, so he swears by himself. And so the covenant is based not only on God's purposes, but God's commitment to himself. The covenant is not based on our good works and our obedience. And in fact, these promises that God made to Abraham were made like centuries, like over 400 years before Moses was even born, before any of these Israelites were even born. They didn't even exist. They hadn't done any obedience. They'd done no good works for God. And he makes all these promises to them. And then they're slaves in Egypt and they've been uh, immersed in Egyptian culture for like 400 years, they're probably worshiping idols, and they're acting just like the Egyptians, and the Lord rescues them and saves them, and it's not until he's already saved them and called them his people, then he finally gives them the Ten Commandments and says, this is how you obey me. This is the pattern that's throughout the Bible is God's grace is first. His his covenant is based on his grace. And so when we come to the New Testament, it's the same. Paul says, it was while we were still sinners Christ died for the ungodly. You know, Paul says in 2 Timothy, we were called not according to our good works, but according to God's own purposes and grace. 1 John says, he first loved us and therefore we should love one another. God's promise and blessing and love, his covenant is not based on our obedience. Take a deep breath. Take a sigh. <laughs> The weight is, the feel the weight off your shoulders. It is based on his own purposes that he has sworn by his own self, and we cannot thwart. So, what's the difference between God's covenant and the Hittites and the Assyrians? Well, first, grace is the difference. Second aspect of God's covenant that we see in this passage is that God's covenant is mediated by a representative. God's covenant is mediated by a representative. And one of the most important things about this passage is Moses is the mediator of the covenant. So he's the representative of God. He goes to God and speaks for the people to God and he represents God to the people. And you see how this passage begins in verse 11. It says, but Moses implored the Lord his God and he said these things. And so he brings these promises. He's, He's standing for the people as he's praying for them. And what happens in verse 14 when the mediator comes? And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, it seems to be saying that, you know, God was angry about this golden calf, and then God changed his mind. And he said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to destroy you like I said it was. You know, does God change his mind? I thought God doesn't change. He's unchanging, you know. And what, did he get, like, new information from Moses? And I'm like, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. Maybe I'll do that. God doesn't get new information. What's happening here is the drama of the Bible. How does God hate the evil in the world and be faithful to an evil people at the same time? That's like the big question of the Bible. That's what the drama of the Bible is. That's the tension of the Bible. Because in the verse right before this passage, in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you the Lord is committed to Moses. He's like, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm committed to Moses. And Moses basically says, if you're committed to me, then I stand for this people and don't destroy them. I represent them. If, you, if you're devoted to me, be devoted to the people. The Israelites receive grace through the mediator. And, you know, this is how God has written the story. It's not that he didn't know what was going to happen. It's that the way that God is appointed to show his grace to a sinful people is through a mediator. This is God's appointed way of doing it. And in many ways, that's what the whole Old Testament is about. You know, you read through the Old Testament, it's it's kind of about the people of Israel. But when you read through it, it's not really about the people of Israel. It's about the leader of the people of Israel. It's about Adam, who represented humanity. It's about Noah. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Judah and, and Moses and Joshua and the judges and, you know, Samuel and David and Solomon and all the kings and Ezra and Nehemiah. It's about this mediator, this representative. And the whole story is saying who is going to be the lasting and permanent mediator who is going to give God's grace to his people. It's like the Old Testament is a story that's waiting for an ending. And of course, the New Testament is the ending to that great story. And Paul summarizes it in 1 Timothy. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus is the appointed mediator. By God. That's how God has chosen to give his grace to his people, is through Christ. All these mediators in the Old Testament are pointing to him. So when we ask the question, what is a covenant? It's a relationship formed between a, you know, a sovereign lord, a suzerain, and a vassal kingdom that he has saved. God has saved all of us. And it includes promises and obligations, blessings and curses, but the uniqueness of God's covenant is that it is not based on our obedience, but on God's purposes and grace, which he communicates to us through a mediator. So then our second question is then, can that covenant ever be broken? And which is a complicated question, actually, reading through the Bible. You know, if you think of the covenant as kind of like a marriage, God has married himself to his people. The question is, can God ever get divorced from his people? And as you read through the Old Testament, you find that at least God is very slow to get divorced. Uh, It's about 800 years from the golden calf, the first idolatry, to the Babylonian exile when Jeremiah says that God has issued divorce papers to, to Israel. And even if God does get divorced, he remarries <laughs> Israel because he's so, devoted to, he's so devoted to his bride. And, uh, you know, throughout the Old Testament, idolatry, you know, the worship of golden calves and statues and false gods, is considered an act of adultery. And in this passage, Israel has been married to the Lord for about a month and she makes a golden calf and commits adultery about a month into the marriage. And Moses makes this plea for them uh, up on the mountain. He, He goes and prays for them. And then it says in verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God Engraved on the tablets. Now the reason there are two tablets in in covenants in the ancient world, there was always one for the suzerain, one for the vassal. So the Lord's like, the Lord's got his covenant and and there's two, one for the people and one for the the king. And then it says in verse seventeen When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as they came near the camp and saw the calf in the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. This is really fascinating because, you know, when Moses was up on the mountain talking to the Lord, the Lord says, hey, you know, your people are worshiping a golden calf down there. And Moses is like, Lord, and the Lord's angry. And Moses is like, don't forget your promises. You swore by yourself. You know, don't destroy the people. And then, and the Lord's like, okay, I relent. And then Moses comes out and he sees the calf. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, this is terrible. And then he gets mad now. And so, uh, and he breaks the two tablets of the covenant. And now when you hear that, you probably think, you know, he lost his temper and he threw the, ta- you know, that just happened to be what he was holding and he threw it on the ground and, oh, no, I broke the tablets. But that's it's probably more of a symbolic act that he's done. You know, because it says that he went to the foot of the mountain. And the foot of the mountain was the place where Israel was married to the Lord. It's like, it's like he went back to the church where the wedding happened and he took the covenant and he broke it as a symbolic act. The covenant is now broken. And actually, he does another symbolic act Right after that in verse 20, you see he says, He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to the ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And you're like, he makes them drink the idol, you know. And Calvin, what Calvin says about this, the reason he did that was so that the idol would come into their bowels and then get this mixed with their excrement. Sorry to be gross. And that's what God thinks, Moses thinks of the idol. So, you know, <laughs> it's a pretty symbolic act. That's Calvin. That wasn't me. Sorry. Um, and uh, that's what Calvin says. So, so you have this tension. The Lord has made these promises that are not based on our obedience. But the people have betrayed God. They've cheated on God and broken the covenant. And so what's going to happen? Well, what happens next is probably was probably troubling to you when I read the passage. So we're gonna read it again. This is what it says. Look at verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Now, the covenant of grace is not based on our obedience. But it does put this question before us. Are you on the Lord's side? And this goes on. It goes on in the second part of verse 26. It says, And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now, these probably aren't their... Literal brothers, their fellow uh, Israelites, and the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about three thousand men of the people fell. Now, I think it's important to remember that these Levites—you know, Aaron, who made the golden calf was a Levite—and these Levites were probably all helping in the worship of the golden calf. And now Moses says, "Who's on the Lord's side?" And all the Levites say, "You know what? We repent. We should not have been doing that." We are definitely on your side. We want to return to, you know, our allegiance to the Lord who's our king. And it's important to understand that it doesn't just say that the Levites went through the camp and were just killing random people. It says that they went to and fro from gate to gate. And it was men that they were putting to death. And what was happening is that the men in the camp were, there was a mutiny that was happening in the camp. And so they were going to each, each camp and saying, listen, are you on the side of the Lord or are you going to persist in your rebellion against him? And if they persist in their rebellion, they were put to death. Now you might think, man, that's so brutal and violent. The Bible is so brutal and violent. But you, like, we have to understand, like, you and I, we don't know what it's like to be a nomadic people living in the 15th century BC in the Levant and you've got kingdoms all around you that are attacking you. And you are a vulnerable people, and all of a sudden you have a mutiny happening. So, what else should you do with the rebels? You're gonna put them in prison or something? You know, arrest them, but they don't have a prison. <laughs> like, they need to do something about this rebellion. And this would have been a normal action to say this is a capital crime to turn against the king that you've given your loyalty to. And Then you add to that that this isn't just any people. These are the Lord's chosen people who have been entrusted with the oracles of God. They are the light and hope of the world. And you're starting a mutiny among God's chosen people. This is cosmic treason. Treason against the Most High God is an attempted coup against the King of Heaven who's just rescued them out of slavery. And so, I, you know, the question is like, what's the appropriate punishment for cosmic treason? <laughs> Capital punishment seems reasonable to me. I, I, it's a serious crime, and I think it's important for us to understand that this is a picture, a small picture of the world that we are living in. You know, so many people look at humanity and say, what is wrong with humanity? Like, there is so much abuse, so much oppression. There's so much selfishness, so much greed, so much violence. Like, what is this darkness? Why is humanity like this? We all know it's wrong, and yet we all do it. And the Bible says the reason is because there is a great rebellion against the king of heaven. We were made to have God as our king, and we said to God, we don't want you to be our king. We want to be our own king. And being a Christian means saying, I don't want to be a part of the rebellion anymore. I don't want to be my own king. I want to be with the Lord. And I know that I still have some of that rebellion in my heart, and I have to fight against it, but deep down, I want the Lord as my king. And so the question is, can the covenant be broken? And the answer is yes. God is slow to anger and forgiving of sins, but if we refuse to say, I am on the Lord's side, he will say, have it your own way, and we'll be cut off from his kingdom. God's covenant is a gift of grace, but we have to say we want God as our king. And so the last question is for those of us who are willing to say, I'm on the Lord's side. I want to be on the Lord's side. So then the last question is, how then does God keep the covenant? And I think there's kind of a hint of an answer at the end of this passage. Uh, You see in verse 30 how it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. And Moses, the mediator, he says he's going to try and make atonement for them. And it's interesting how he attempts to do it. So he's come down from the mountain. He's going to go back up and talk to the Lord for the people again. And in verse 31, it says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. As Christians, we might read that and think, you know, is Moses saying that he would be judged in the place of the people? Like, if God won't forgive, like, judge me instead of them. Don't blot them out, blot me out instead. That's not really what Moses says. Moses says, forgive them. And if you're not going to forgive them, I want to get blotted out too. Just blot us all out. And, you know, it's a little bit cynical and defeatist. And Moses is saying he cannot make atonement for the people he can't answer the question where their forgiveness can come from. And what this passage is longing for, what the whole Old Testament is longing for, is the true mediator of the covenant who can make atonement for God's people. And when Jesus, who is the better Moses, comes, he does not say, forgive the people or I will just go be condemned with them. He says, I will take their condemnation in their place. That is how you can forgive them and I will rise again and conquer condemnation forever. And on the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus did what Moses couldn't do and never thought could be done. Jesus took the punishment for our covenant breaking in our place so that God forever could stay in covenant with us. And the answer to the drama, how can God be in covenant with people like us? is Jesus. He is the answer. And so friends, If you have said, I am on the Lord's side, you will have ups and downs throughout your Christian life. You will have times where you struggle more with sin and temptation, times where you feel you're failing to meet the Lord's commands, others where you feel like you're fruitful and serving his kingdom. And through all the red hot emotion and doubt and struggle and fear and joy and love, know that what binds you to your God is not your good works or your spiritual maturity, It is the immovable covenant of grace that has been sealed to you by the blood of Jesus. God has swore by himself, I will never leave you. You have a mediator greater than Moses, who is the very son of God, who goes and implores the Lord on your behalf in heaven right now. So friends, this morning, I invite you to rest. Rest in the security of God's covenant of grace. Let's pray together.